Hello again and welcome to Wrestling Memories Then and Now on Pioneer 90.1 FM KSRQ. We are available also online to the masses who are outside the FM listening area. You can check us out at www.radionorthland.org. You can listen live or if you happen to miss out on the live uh, episode, you can go back, check out the archives. We've got a Wrestling Memories page at radionorthland.org that will link you to our SoundCloud, which we have over six years of wrestling memories interviews there's some very very good stuff in there go up radionorthland.org also if you want to listen live on your cell phone it's easy tune in that's a free little thing a nice little app that you can use i love the word free and i love quality with it too free and quality you can't go wrong well good afternoon glenn brockett with you uh, michael mccurdy is on assignment he is missing out on a very good week why because um my guest is a fantastic author who has put out some home runs uh, when it comes to uh, pro wrestling books it's, it's not the only books he's released we'll, we'll get into some of his other stuff too but he has put out some fantastic books through the years about pro wrestling including the national wrestling alliance the untold story of the monopoly that strangled pro wrestling uh i i, I mentioned that one i also mentioned uh, capital revolution the rise of the mcmahon wrestling empire he has another book about pro wrestling too you got to check out uh it goes back and looks at some of the greatest wrestlers of all time but these two books that he has put out about the nwa and the uh mcmahon family the, the rise of the empire were so well researched well put together books and very readable absorbing books too because you know you can put all the information in the world in something and but if you can't make it entertaining you know you're going to lose a lot of people but he has made some great connections with pro wrestling fans young and old alike with those two books and he is back again with a new book that i i i was talking to him before we started the interview and i i'm thinking i'm gonna have to go revisit this book uh from start to finish once again because it really hits the era of which i started watching professional wrestling in the early 1980s and it really just, you know, it goes in from there and takes us all the way through the end of uh, what was the uh, territory system, which meant there were promoters all over the country having their own little piece of the of the rock as part of the NWA. Well, things changed in the 1980s. A lot of the things factored in uh, with that change, of which uh, the, the main one, the, the main storm uh, that blew in was uh, uh, Vince McMahon, Vincent Kennedy McMahon in his rise uh, to prominence and, of course, the World Wrestling Federation. With us to talk about his latest book, Death of the Territories, Expansion Betrayal in the War that Changed Pro Wrestling Forever. It's a great honor to have him on Wrestling Memories, uh, Mr. Tim Hornbaker. Tim, thank you for coming onto the program. And, and first, also thank you for this wonderful book, Death of the Territories. Glenn, thank you very much. Uh, the honor is mine to be on your show. I love your show, and uh, thank you for having me. Um, uh, my new book, Death of the Territories, really is an examination of the fall of the legendary territorial system and also looks at the rise of Vince McMahon, Vincent Kennedy McMahon, as he built a national, wrestling's first national promotion. So it was really a, a lot of fun to research and write this book, and I look forward to talking to you about it. Yeah, and I look forward to uh, throwing you some questions, uh, hopefully, uh, that will be answered about it. I mean, to refresh the fans, I mentioned the two titles. I mean, you, you've put out many a title in your career as an author, but the, the books that I just put together as part of what I feel are like a proper companion pieces to one another, uh, I mean, some of the fans uh, are aware of your books on, on the National Wrestling Alliance and the uh, early days of the McMahon family. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that? Because they all kind of just have that way of connecting to one another, uh, thus equaling out here uh, the end of the territory run with this new book uh, to just kind of talk about a little bit about those books and, and the length of which to uh, your latest yes absolutely um and i never really planned it this way uh, i started out with my nwa book as you explained and i really wanted to give fans a backstory of that uh, legendary organization going back to you know its forefathers and how they created the nwa and how it kind of monopolized the business and I continued the story with Capital Revolution, focusing in on the Northeastern Territory and Vincent James McMahon and how he was able to kind of use television in his own way to bring together all of these different states and all these different wrestlers to produce uh, probably some of the most successful wrestling at that time. Uh, this book kind of takes over where uh, that book left off, now continues with his son, Vincent uh, Jr., if you want to say, and looks at how he branches out and also uses television to create, like I said, the first national promotion. So these three books were kind of, they happened, I think, after I wrote NWA and got into Capital Revolution, 
uh, the thought of writing another book was exciting to me. Uh, it was kind of uh, daunting in a way because I, I hadn't done it. I was, of course, a fan in the 1980s, but didn't have a lot of re original research. So going into this book, it was kind of a challenge for me to step back and see what kind of information I would have needed and, and really get into it. But now that they're all completed and, I, and I've done this third book, it's really you could really see it's three of a series. Mm -hmm. And, and the, yeah, exact connections to it. And you know, into this book too, it's definitely for somebody who you know. There's always a wrestling fan who has a, you know kind of a, a broader, not not quite as a in depth idea about what happened with professional wrestling uh, in the 1980s, uh, the way things kind of went. I mean, there's a lot of people that uh, have really put the, the the sole blame on the death of the territories on on Vince McMahon and his way of expansion and, and going beyond just uh, having a little piece of the country. But I think in this book, I guess it gives you more of an understanding of, yes, Vince McMahon and his uh, forward thinking were very much uh, uh, what helped kind of get him over the top. But you had to kind of look involved. And in this book, you kind of fig find out uh, things that were starting to kind of sour anyway within this golden era of wrestling. I think it's just the thing of one generation turning to the next. But the way things started to kind of decay within the promotional structure of, of yesterday and what was running at the time. So it was kind of two things kind of crossing. And I think with this book, you get a little bit more than just the Al Vince killed wrestling. You get to kind of figure out, yes, he had a hand in it, but there were other things that were at play involved the promotions and their various problems with these in different parts of the country. That's a great point. And uh, I'm glad, you know, the book really kind of gets that across because yes, Vince McMahon was doing his thing. He was using cable television. He was expanding. He was buying promotions. He was doing all of these things, but the old time promoters, the old time promoters of the NWA, the AWA, you had these guys that were kind of set in their ways and, as wrestling was evolving, as technology was evolving, these, these promoters were not evolving as well. They were not going the extra mile to ensure that they were reaching the fans of the 80s. And that's exactly where McMahon capitalized in the situation. And he might not have been popular with old-time fans that liked the territorial system, but where McMahon was succeeding was he was bringing in all of these new fans, you know, and he had these various streams of income coming in and it, it, and essentially, he was just doing things that were so beyond what the old promoters were doing. And by the time the old promoters, and, and you even say like Jim Crockett Jr. and Vern Gagne, you know, they got into merchandising and, and syndication, they were just too far behind by that point. But uh, I'm sure we'll get into that as we go on. But that, that's a great point you made. Yeah, yeah, and it's just something I've got, the conclusion I've come to, you know, reading this and reading other stuff through the year, because when you think about it, you know, too, you know, Vince McMahon, uh, Vincent Kennedy McMahon, the younger Vince Jr., whatever you want to refer to him as through the years, uh, he, you know, he wasn't one of those things where he was handed over this comp this company uh, by his dad. This was something that Vince had to pay into. This was also part of the dues that he did pay, you know, when he got involved in his dad's company, not only making a connection with his father, but also uh, getting in his line of work and kind of working his way through the ranks in not only professional wrestling, but running arenas and also uh, getting into pay-per-view ventures uh, with, with the evil Knievel uh, Snake River or Snake Canyon uh, Jump or whatever it was and uh, the uh, uh, Anoki Ali thing. So, I mean, there was things, Vince was building himself up uh, and it wasn't just a case of the rich kid getting the handout. And that, I think that's a, a big misconception that a lot of people have. They, people think that he was handed some grand empire and while the Northeastern Territory was probably the most successful monetarily, uh, you know, bit promotion in North America, you know, they made really good money there. But in terms of having the structure that McMahon would later have and had just, you know, the, the individuals in the right places, the, the amount of wrestlers that he needed, um, you know, just the entire structure that Titan Sports and the World Wrestling Federation had going for him, McMahon did that all himself. And like you said, he, um, he learned from the ground up. He started learning from his father, and I think he just absorbed so much. And at the same time, he had this grand vision of what he thought professional wrestling could be and how he could change the business. And um, that's exactly what he did. 
Mm-hmm. And one of those great things that, that brought about change through the years, and this goes back to even to the earlier days of television, to the medium of television uh, in the pre-cable days. Uh, I mean, this I mean, this wasn't just a, 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 a thing that just really exploded. I mean, we talk about the earlier days of the DeMont Network in, in this book and how even back then, you know, this is how it kind of splintered off with with creations of a regional of regional television came also regional professional wrestling. But let's go back in, into the days of TV where it wasn't just, uh, you know, we got one little show. This was uh, something that where it started the splintering and the way the medium worked with with pro wrestling. Absolutely. And, um, you know, that was the beginnings of all at all. And you had even going back to Dumont where Fred Kohler was, uh, you know, he had created this syndication network and not, you know, and, and instead of just uh, his promotion reaching the Chicago area, he was now influencing, you know, half the country. And I think, you know, looking back at those days, uh, wrestling in the 1950s wasn't exactly prepared for that. I mean, promoters in other regions were uh, influenced and, and upset that now Chicago TV was in their backyard. And, and I think they eventually got, you know, they made deals and then, you know, there was wrestling wars, and I think all of these things happened. Um, you know, fa- you know, fast forwarding to cable television now, and you're, you're seeing the same exact thing where cable te- television now reaching the national audience. You have local promoters having this in their backyard. They're complaining. They want to know, you know, what are they going to get out of it? And with the National Wrestling Alliance, you kind of had a, a central ground where people could go to the table and debate and figure out how they could work together to solve those problems. Well, with Vince McMahon Jr. was doing his business, he wasn't involved in the NWA. There was no medium, like middle ground, where they can go and debate this and solve this amicably. So uh, with Vince McMahon and his actions, things were bound to change. And back then, too, even in the, the pre-cable days, if you were in a certain part of the country, you could end up with some overlap with, with some of the promotions. And, and that, that also could kind of get a, a thorn in the side of, of some promotions uh, down, maybe, say, in the South. Like, for an example, uh, Leroy McGurk, if he had a, his main market and he had some of these other shows that were bleeding in from other parts. Uh, that was another thing that, that even though it wasn't cable just yet, that was a bone of contention. And, and they had to kind of watch and mind their P's and Q's. It was great for the fans who benefited, but also it could create some confusion and also a little animosity. Definitely, and it was up to that local promoter to, to, to solve it in, in one way or another or upgrade his own TV or to uh, make deals with the outside television that were coming into their particular towns because, yes, exactly, fans were going to get confused. They wanted to know why this outside television was coming in, and sometimes it was better TV than what they were receiving locally, and they wanted to see those local wrestlers at their local arenas. And for McGurk, if he wasn't featuring – uh, you know, some of these stars that were coming out of, you know, they were seeing Memphis TV or something out of Texas, you know, there was confusion and it would hurt the local promotion. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of up to the local promoter to, you know, make the deals or to, again, like I said, upgrade their own promotion to ensure that they were competitive. So was this all about survival, whether it was satellite or, or local feeds? And, and boy, and definitely when the satellite era and the rise of the cable superstation, uh, that definitely it was another way to, to uh, I guess, find... I don't know, I guess to change up their game a little bit. But then another thing, this I mean, the blessing curse of television with its exposure where, yeah, yeah, it's a little bit, I guess, becomes more of a curse when you have the national show coming out because now you'll want more people in your territory. You'll have fans wondering, well, where's Tommy Rich? Uh, you know, when you have a territory that's in, in Arizona or someplace in, you know, people have uh, more curiosity now with, with the advent of cable television. And that also, again, a blessing curse if you're able to work around it and you're able to kind of find agreement with maybe some of these outfits uh, like the WWF and uh, with, with Georgia at that time. Uh, absolutely, and I think that was again that was the challenge of the local promoter to stay on good terms with, uh, you know, the WWF when they first had WOR, and then they, you know, they eventually McMahon got on USA, and then you know, like you said WTBS for the NWA to kind of work together and feature stars that would be featured around the country on WTBS. Promoters in various parts of the country wanted to have not only their local talent on the cable network but they wanted to receive talent that was being featured on the channel that were appearing elsewhere that maybe, you know, they hadn't uh, seen before. 
So there was kind of a double-edged sword, and these promoters, it was a sink-or-swim environment and all about survival, and uh, they really had to change the way they did things now that they were being so heavily influenced and their region was being so heavily influenced by cable television. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and that, too, would come to have a major impact on, on the way the territories, uh, uh, just the, the, the way the things, the, 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 the sea changes that were to come in the 1980s. When I think of television, though, and I want to bring him up because uh, this is a guy that fascinates me because he is a major, major part of a pro wrestling history. He's one of the guys that you, I don't know, he, he does, they don't have a book about him yet. I'm waiting for it to happen because it would be one hell of a story. Uh, this is a guy that was around from the earlier days of studio television in the United States. He went on to become a major player uh, internationally in Australia. He's uh, been involved in various uh, promotions throughout the years. Just a guy that had connections. He was pro wrestling high society. Uh, yeah, I'm talking about Jim Barnett or Jimsy to his friends. Uh, you want to talk about a guy you know that was there. Uh, it's almost like a Forrest Gump Zelig sort of thing. You know, he was there at the original, at sort of the advent of studio wrestling, and he managed to just find his way. He's like the Robert Evans of pro wrestling, the kid who stays in the pitcher um, for the various things and the various uh, things that he has helped contribute to pro wrestling, uh, good, bad, or ugly. Jim Barnett was uh, a major power player uh, for a guy who wasn't an NWA president. It is unreal how much power and just what he was able to accomplish in his career, and I agree a thousand percent. I wish he would have written an autobiography. I wish someone can, can gather enough information to put a biography on him out there. I think that would be a fascinating read. But his career stretching from you know, the late 1940s in Chicago uh, all the way through, like you said, the start of the studio television era and going into Australia. And then he was a power player in the NWA and later worked for the WWF. I mean, the man had a career like nobody. And, uh, you know, for everything that he knew, all the deals he was involved in and all the people that he worked with, uh, his stories are just unreal. And I agree. I, I wish there I, – I would love to have done it. Uh, maybe I still can try to at one point. But that Jim Barnett definitely deserves his own book. Oh, uh, 100%. And you want to go through a guy who has just been at the forefront of these big movements. I mean, if it wasn't for – this the Jim Barnett Ole Anderson uh, push and pull dynamic they had the love hate thing the relationship uh, we probably uh, wouldn't have seen uh, WWF television uh, taking over that that coveted slot that was on a superstation in Atlanta because it was such a big moment when Black Saturday came I mean that was that was seismic that was that, I mean good bad or ugly in the end you know looking at it with hindsight that was a big big move. And yeah, it all kind of started with this push and pull dynamic with 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 Jim and Oli, just two di- different diverse personalities, very strong-willed people. I agree. And if they had somehow been able to continue just to work together, they didn't have to be best friends, but they could have maintained that heart of that promotion and and maintained their business. The NWA would have maintained a national cable platform, but instead, McMahon, you know, he. Barnett was already fuming at Anderson and vice versa, and then uh, Barnett and McMahon, they made a deal, and and, and then the dominoes were falling, and finally McMahon got a hold of WTBS, and Black Saturday occurred, and it was a gigantic slap in the face to the NWA, and it was a major, uh, like an atomic bomb went off in professional wrestling. But, it, it and it again, it showed the amount, the the extent that Vince McMahon Jr. would go to to be successful, and it, it was all it was a it was a great move on his part, and it really hurt the NWA at its core and left a, a lot of lasting damage. You're listening to Wrestling Memories Then and Now. I'm Glenn Broggett, along with my guest, author Tim Hornbaker. He has a fantastic new book out called The Death of the Territories: Expansion, Betrayal, and the War That Changed Pro Wrestling for ever now we talk about larger than life characters in the world of professional wrestling in in those golden days uh, those final waning years of the territories i want to talk about a couple of guys that that it seemed like you know they didn't have to go beyond just one city back in those days 
and they were well known for being. I guess you you refer to just kind of the way even like Vince uh, Vince Senior, uh, Vern Gagne, and, and some of the others were able to exchange talent. That cordiality uh, that the promoters had in regards to talent exchange, and what better talents that really benefited, and guys that really didn't have to go beyond these towns who made their legend, made their mint. I'm talking about Sam Muchnick in St. Louis and uh, in Houston, Paul Bosch. Uh, absolutely. Those are two of the uh, the greatest promoters in history, and uh, they didn't have to have a territory of their own. Their, their city was their territory, and because they did such great business and because they had uh, such great deals in, in place and they were known as gentlemen, uh, you had the best talent in the world coming to their to their cities on you know every other week or every week for their shows for their television shows so those St. Louis and Houston were you know the pinnacle of professional wrestling and uh, Muchnick and, and Bosch were uh, were two of, of the top promoters around and I think um, it was it was a pleasure and a privilege to go and, and wrestle for those two gentlemen. Mm-hmm. Do you think too? Uh, one of the the major blows, as far as that the the, the, pat, the bygone era, was when Sam Sam retired because he left such a, a big hole in St. Louis wrestling that, you know, it wasn't going to get filled by guys like, like Bob Geigel or, or, or you know even Harley to an extent on the promotion side. And Larry Matisic, for all you know, was very good at his work too. But this was just such a different time. The way things were moving, how fast things were moving towards expansion. That it just you know once Sam retired, I, I just think that uh, the wheels started to kind of fall off gradually, and then with with Vince uh, Jr. Uh, making his expansion moves and buying into markets, it was pretty much a a, a goner situation for a real prominent wrestling city. Definitely, and Sam retiring was a um, a major milestone for professional wrestling. He was the glue behind not only the St. Louis promotion but behind the NWA as well. And even though he retired as the NWA president in the mid-70s, he was still a, a voice of reason for the organization. He still was a leader that people respected. And I think once he finally stepped back for good, St. Louis fell under Geigel and all of the, and they, and you had new, uh, these new booking philosophies that were, were coming into the city. And uh, I think it affected things up and down the line. And I think fans started to see that, hey, you know, this is not how we grew up watching professional wrestling. And then once you had the WWF coming in, um, fans, you really had to choose whether or not you wanted to stay a follower of professional wrestling at that point because the Northeastern style of the WWF was, again, uh, completely opposite from what Sam Muchnick was doing. And with what Geigel was presenting, you, you just had such, such an opposite kind of direction for, for the business. And I, I'm pro- probably lots of fans just, you know, walked away and said, you know, I can't support this. And those who did stay around really had to adjust to this new era of, of wrestling. And for those old school fans, it was becoming part of the uh, the beginnings of the, the sad reality of, of things shutting down. When you have major pro wrestling towns and territories that were just apparently getting burnt out by the, by the same kind of tired product, you know, for, for, for what it's worth, the Sheik is a legend. But you you got to think that the there had to have been some sort of just exhaustion on the the part of his the, the fans that would go to seeing the same thing over and over again. When you have these new alternatives that are starting to pop up, you know you have these cities like a Kansas City that had a, such a great pro wrestling uh, tradition too. Uh, by the time uh, you know it was ready to shut things down, they were lucky they could draw a couple of hundred people to the Memorial Hall, and that's when they were bringing in you know and doing talent exchanges. So uh, it, it just you think about it, it's just so, so sad that these one strong wrestling bases were, were didn't really have a backup plan, it seemed, at some moments in time, and were such easy fodder for, for Vince to, to pick up and, and just bring on with his expansion and keeping the brand alive, keeping it going. Definitely, and McMahon, in a lot of these places, it was all ripe for the, for the taking. Some of these areas were burned out by these, these old booking patterns, and even though, like you said, Kansas City had talent-sharing deals, there, were, there was exceptional talent still going into Kansas City with Flair and Bruiser Brody and some of these, these top guys still entering the, in the city. And when you have you know, less than 1,000 fans turn out, I mean, there, that is a, is a great example of how things were just crumbling and how these promoters couldn't fix it. And whether or not it was fans that were burned out or they were, these fans had moved on to something else or they were watching the WWF, fans were just, they were not 
they were not taken to the territorial system and to these older promotions like they had in years past. And I think with with cable television and you see uh, this colorful, these uh, these new wrestlers coming in on, on weekly television on cable from the WWF and, you, and you're like, hey, this looks really professional and uh, wow, what we, this is something new. And then you, you compare that to the kind of the grainy and gritty old territorial television shows that were, you know, they didn't have the music and the graphics. I, I think fans, you know, at that point, you know, they saw this new fangled uh, promotion and they were excited about it and were kind of just, you know, done with the territories. They washed their hands of it. They were done supporting it. And uh, in other ways, you had long-term fans that were just in the same way, just uh, fed up with how far everything had fallen. Do you think so it was I cool think for do you think do you think it was cool for those newfound fans that uh, they could you know at pro wrestling at the time when it was hitting that boom period that they were having something that was right up there with pop culture it was right up there with the the top movies of the day the top music of the day it was in the same breath when you mentioned pro wrestling you heard WWF yes. and it was Hulk Hogan so it, it was just like that was kind of becoming that new sort of finessing and conditioning of a pro wrestling fan whereas you could see some of the fans that, that felt maybe left in the dust because it always happened when there's a boom period there's always going to be somebody more of the more purist side of, of what was done before that sees this as a cash grab or just a sell out buy out sort of thing but there is still this new connection and a new way of finessing the fans that are coming in and thus creating new ways and streams of revenue and i think mcmahon was capitalizing all on all of that he, he saw the writing on the wall and he he saw how people were reacting, and with Hulk Hogan and this MTV generation, people were reacting positively. His money was going up. He was selling out in Los Angeles and other parts of the country. Los Angeles was a, a dead territory, and McMahon and the WWF resurrected it. And if you look through the 80s, uh, you know, just some of these cities that were, you know, really, Detroit, I mean, that's a perfect example. The Sheik had burned the city out. A couple of years later, McMahon was selling out, you know, all of the major venues, WrestleMania three at the Silver Dome. So you, you could just see how maybe, yeah, you're right. You're not going to appease everybody. You're not going to make everybody happy. Old school fans are always going to have something to grump, uh, you know, grumble about. But then you had this new wave of, of wrestling fans that, that were embracing the WWF and Vince McMahon. And, and that's how kind of everything turned. It's kind of the concept of a major movie uh, studio that has these big blockbusters that are pretty, you know, not exactly the uh, hardest to follow and plot and have lots of explosions. Those are the things that they put the money in to make the big money. But what people forget is some of those things, that money trickles down to other endeavors through down the movie uh, food chain for a movie studio. So maybe some of the hipper movie that you might see on an indie imprint could be benefiting from the spill of what was the popular thing. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's even going on to this day. I think that uh, with alternatives to uh, the biggest wrestling shows that are going on out there, and, you know, you have fans that still will gravitate to uh, smaller, uh, you know, venues or smaller uh, promotions. And I think uh, that's happened throughout, uh, definitely since the 80s. And, um, you know, wrestling has always been, uh, you know, a popular sport. And I think there's just different levels of this business. And, uh, you know, in the 1980s, you know, we saw the, the monster that the WWF was creating and you could still see how McMahon is capitalizing on it today. Yeah. And, well, you know, we're going to go back into the talk of uh, Vince's impact uh, in, in on the death of the territories. And this one kind of hits us uh, up here in northwestern Minnesota, close to home here in the Midwest. Uh, you know, I was I grew up one of some of my first earliest pro wrestling memories in the in, you know early 1980s. We're watching AWA wrestling, so I have a little little something in the heart, a little bit of sentimental feeling towards uh, the American Wrestling Association. But even as a kid, as I was starting to watch this wrestling, I could see the way the Vince McMahon effect head on Vern Gagne. You know, there was a lot of things. We do the the what ifs and what could have happened with Vern and the whole Kogan thing and how, you know, this, that, and the other could have been prevented, that this maybe the AWA could have had the big bigger company in the end. But, uh, you know, seeing it now as I've gotten older, even old, you know, looking back on it, it was pretty much the writing on the wall with what Vince had. But Vern... Vern was so stubborn and set in his ways. I mean, even even as the ship was starting to sink in the end, 
he was trying to find some way to, to maintain it. But I think the gripe with Vern and from watching through the years was he didn't have that pageantry, that pomp and circumstance that the WWF had at the when they started making their way through. And and I could definitely see the the fans starting to to pass Vern by, especially after guys like Hulk Hogan and your Jesse Venturas and Mean Gene Okerlunds and I mean they were taking everybody, uh, even down to Alderusha. You know, where Vern, yeah. Vern fought, he fought, and you know, for all of his stubbornness, he ended up, uh, you know, getting his cupboards pretty much stripped bare at, at certain points, but still managing to keep his head above water for much longer than I had initially thought. It is absolutely true. And researching Vern Gagne in the AWA was one of the highlights, I think, for me in this book to kind of, and I, because and I, I didn't really understand how the national expansion of Vince Jr. had impacted him so so direly and so desperately and so so deeply, I guess like I will, I'll say, you know, Gagne was, like you said, he lost uh, talent, he lost office workers, he lost his cities, he had cities literally taken from him, he lost uh, his biggest venues, and eventually he lost his entire circuit. So of all the promoters that went uh, kind of head-to-head with McMahon, uh, I don't think anybody suffered as much as Gagne, but you, you said a, a great thing when, when you were just explaining that. Gagne was stubborn. He was set in his ways. He wasn't willing to give up. And in interviews going into 86, 87, he was still telling people how he was going to outlast the WWF and how he was going to be the last man standing. So he, you know, he did make certain changes, but the changes that he needed to make to be competitive he was just too late in doing or never did at all. And by the time it was all said and done, the AWA was a memory. Oh, for sure. I mean, when you think, well, in 1985, I mean, Vern was still very much, uh, you know, he had these relationships, uh, you know, the uh, Pro Wrestling USA endeavor that kind of uh, came and went that was good in concept, but uh, short on execution. But it still brought with these these shows that Vern was involved with and, and, and with the AWA, uh, you know, the on ESPN for having shows out of the East Coast and Atlantic City. You got this kind of see a little bit of the uh, the Pro Wrestling USA uh, talent pool. And, and, and it was it's some really good stuff. Vern had some great talent. I mean, when you had the Freebirds, you had the Road Warriors, you had Jimmy Garvin, you had guys, Rick Martell was your champion for a while. Uh, you know, right up uh, right up and around the implosion of the Pro Wrestling USA thing. I mean, there was Super Clash that was a fantastic show. But yeah, Vern, I think, was kind of like the last guy to, uh, to leave the party when it came to those things, though, whether it would be forming uh, an endeavor with uh, Jerry Jarrett or uh, with all of these other promoters, uh, including Jarrett in the Pro Wrestling USA. USA project it just seemed like Vern Vern carried as long as he could but you know he because I think he really just wanted to to hit back at McMahon I think the most out of all of those promoters but again it was a case of you get all those big personalities together they're not going to get anything solved so again great idea and conception but execution was just not where it should have been yeah and that's where you needed Sam Muchnick to kind of come in and bring everybody to the table and kind of maybe even knock some heads around and talk some sense to them and say hey gentlemen you know if we're going to survive, if this is going to be a competitive thing against McMahon, we need to work together. And like you said, Gagne and Crockett and all of these different personalities just couldn't make it happen when they had the opportunities. They had a national platform with Pro Wrestling USA, and they could have done some some uh, good for, for wrestling and for themselves. Uh, but after that passed, Gagne was, uh, was still just uh, trying to hammer against McMahon on his own, and he did make some... Uh, deals with other promoters and try to keep the talent kind of flowing, but everything was a dead end. There was no way to kind of resurrect that. Um, and, um, you know, like I said, it, w- it was headed nowhere and, and Ganya ended up, you know, forced out of the business. Mm-hmm. And it was really, really sad to see that go, just watching it from, uh, you know, watching the ESPN and the syndicated shows just to see how far it had fallen. I mean, uh, you you, sure. you you end up uh, you know going from that first super clash to the second super clash at the Cow Palace wasn't that big of a crowd but still you had Kurt Henning and Nick Bockwinkel in the main event it was a very quality thing by the time super clash incredible talent oh yeah. god yeah you you can't deny that there was you know that there was you know, there was talent there but by the time the third one rolled around they tried to get this whole consortium of talent thing going with uh, you know with Jerry Jarrett and I think what they have uh, Dave McLean with the the Powell wrestling group for the ladies. They tried to put all of this stuff together, and it just—it just seemed like as much as we wanted to have a little bit, one little last gasp, but just something. 
it, 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 it spectacularly failed on so many levels. And when you hear about the stories of, of the behind the scenes stuff, especially in regards to the Carrie uh, Lawler main event and people not getting yeah. paid, naturally pro wrestling business not getting paid. What a shocker. Uh, but just all of those little things that, you know, and, and just the, the bad feelings that it came out of it with Jarrett and uh, the AWA. And I mean, when you had your champion, you know, when Lawler went over on Von Eric, that must not have been too comfortable of a situation with Vern and you know having that happen and then stripping Lawler and then leading all the kinds of different things it, it, AWA just they, they, they couldn't shoot straight and, and just the bad karma was the bad bad things were all over them and, and, and the writing on the wall did end up costing them a lot in the end uh, when you talk about how Vern and his financial situation and then even up to the end with 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 kind of just a rough life he had ended up living but it was it was yeah, good times, but it was it, it was but it was really sad times too when, when we think about the AWA and what what could have been and, and what did happen. Yeah, and I I think Gagne deserves a lot of respect for what he was able to accomplish in his lifetime. I have a lot of respect for him, and that that too is another book I'd love to see written. His life story, just everything that he was able to do, and um, yeah, to see that fall, especially being from that part of the country, seeing him go from where he had been in the mid-80s to, you know, within a few short years having lost so much. Gagne did have opportunities, and I think wrestling these territories, I, and while the territories probably would have failed anyways, you, you can't say these promoters didn't have opportunities to, to make better moves or to work together and to, to make deals that would have been successful, you know, help them be successful and uh, for their strong personalities and for things falling apart. And like you mentioned, you know, payoffs that weren't made. I mean, these guys did this to themselves in a lot of ways. And, and we go back to what we talked about in the very beginning. McMahon didn't do all this. McMahon did a lot, but he did not cause the territories to die. Yeah, this was planting the seeds of their own disenchantment and, and the, 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 the things that result from it. And, and you think about another thing, another group of gentlemen are two guys that ended up working together uh, and ending up with a merger, uh, well, of course, uh, with one buying the other out. Uh, Jim Crockett Promotions, this was the company that kind of took over and kind of swept out and bought out the Georgia Championship uh, time slot. They had Mid-Atlantic Wrestling all over the Carolinas. This was like a pretty logical fit when you're watching the TV as far as what, what would work perfectly for for Atlanta and, and keep that stro- strong Southern wrestling tradition behind. Uh, if it weren't for Jim Crockett, uh, you know, we probably would still be watching maybe championship wrestling from Georgia. But the way he kind of came in, I mean, he was one of the guys that uh, really wanted to go all out and really want to try to uh, take, a, take a stab at, uh, you know, stopping McMahon or maybe equaling the success McMahon has financially and with some of the stuff uh, in other areas of marketing. Yes, and I, I think uh, Jim Crockett did a lot of things right, uh, acquiring the WTBS slots and uh, you know building up his uh, syndication network. And um, you know you could we could debate whether or not buying the UWF was a good idea or not, but we we know from it he did get more wrestlers into his talent pool, which was needed to have a national a strong national circuit. So he he was doing a lot of things right and um, was definitely giving McMahon maybe maybe not a loss of sleep, but he was definitely doing enough to, uh, you know, run up there and create a, a viable promotion to make it a two-horse two race. And now, you know, Vince McMahon wasn't dealing with someone who was ill-prepared. He had, you know, Crockett had ca- cable TV. They were going to go into, you know, they had a major card every year, Starcade. They were going to go into pay-per-view, and they were touring nationally. So I think it now was, a, you know, a head-to-head race between two motivated promotions. Yeah, and one of the knocks too on the uh, the the Crockett uh, UWF purchase. I mean, it it, w- it was great for for the TV markets, but although one of the knocks is product wise was, I mean, they had some of the great talent that they took o- that they took contract wise over, but a, a lot of people have thought that they could have uh, done a little bit more as far as like you know the reasoning, you know, having this merger, maybe having a comp. It was more of a competitive feud environment with some of the former champions of the UWF, maybe mergers of titles, maybe putting a little something uh, together like say at the time uh, Dr. Death Steve Williams was the champion Ric Flair they could have done something maybe uh, to be at the forefront of maybe an angle or something that would work for a pay-per-view or a big omni event or someplace in UWF country maybe in in the Superdome 
that I think there was a missed opportunity. But then, you know, it was history repeating itself when the WWF had that same situation when when they were WWF, the WWE, uh, WCW invasion of the early 2000s. So it was kind of uh, not directly, but it was almost history repeating itself about missed opportunities. That's a great point, and I never even really thought about that, but that is exactly a, a great example of a major missed opportunity. Uh, we look back at what happened after the UWF was purchased, and we, we think about how they could have had an invasion angle. They could have done, you know, like you said, these uh, unification matches. Williams versus Flair could have been the headline match at Starcade one year. I mean, we're, we're looking at a lot of different events that would have built up a lot of excitement. Think about what they could have done in the Superdome, uh, you know, just a lot of things that, that could have happened that would have uh, just changed things a lot. And for whatever I, I think that was in the midst of Jim Crockett's own financial demise. I mean, night, late 1987, realizing how much money they were putting out for these TV uh, packages they had and these massive contracts that they had. So I, I think by that point, Crockett was so almost tapped out that um, it was almost they were on, uh, you know, trying to survive versus coming up with, you know, these grand ideas that really would have helped the promotion. So, you know, wrestling fans really missed out on what could have been based on that. You're listening to Wrestling Memories Then and Now. Glenn Broggett, along with my guest, Tim Hornbaker, author of a great book called Death of the Territories, Expansion, Betrayal, and the War that Changed Pro Wrestling Forever. As we're heading into our uh, final segments, I, I, I still, we didn't get a chance to mention another, uh, another uh, wrestler, former wrestler, became a promoter uh, in the great state of Texas. Uh, another situation where fate uh, played a, a cruel hand as far as, uh, you know, not only his promotion, but really his, the family life, the family structure, on something that uh, when you watch the uh, the wrestling back, whether, wherever you get your wrestling online, uh, you, you can see what a great show this was and, and what innovative stuff they were doing with camera work, in-ring work, uh, the vignettes. Uh, I'm talking about Fritz Von Erich and world-class uh, what became world class championship wrestling? Uh, you want to talk about a territory that had some really hot TV at some time, but you know, inevitably, due to uh, just a series of unfortunate events, uh, both personally uh, and some of the other guys, not only family members, but some of the other guys passing away and just deals going uh, going sour and, and just battles with the NWA. Just another great what have been what might have been uh, if if Fritz uh, would have pulled the trigger on expansion when he did have a chance. Yeah, Fritz had so many things going for him. I mean, his sons were on top of the world. And, of course, we're talking before tragedy began to hit kind of one at a time. And you mentioned, you know, the, the personal tragedy. And then, you you know, you lose uh, Gino Hernandez. And then just all of these things that just happened uh, right when business was at its hottest. I mean, 1984 to 1986, you know, we, we're talking, um, you know, some of the best wrestling around innovative, like you mentioned. And, um, you know, Von Erich was looking at expansion. He had a syndication network that was growing. He went to the Middle East and presented shows. Um, there was a lot of opportunity that I think could have been. And then, like we said, with um, Crockett and just, you know, running to a point where, hey, you know, we got to deal with our personal problems. There's really not any more room for growth or to expand or to create this, you know, something new. We kind of just have to kind of pull back and just survive. And I, I think the Von Erichs were at that point, you know, after Kerry's motorcycle accident and uh, uh, David had passed away and then Mike had the, um, the toxic shock syndrome uh, issue and then he eventually uh, passed away. I mean, there was just a succession of, of bad uh, happenings in the, in, in the Von Erichs territory and world class really went from being one of the shining stars in professional wrestling to, again, just a massive uh, tragedy. And they had such a big deal, too, with, with the Christian Broadcasting Network, too. That was a, another way of getting their, their show out. And I thought that was a, a yes. pretty, pretty good outlet for, for getting some eyes to, to, to those TVs. But then, of course, you see having things like this happen, too. It's not exactly uh, good PR. No. And, you know, and you, you have, again, this opportunity to create amazing wrestling on a national level. And you have these these super over wrestlers, uh, you know, uh, the Von Erichs were, were heroes unparalleled. I mean, they were extremely popular. And then to, you know, to start losing these wrestlers, you know, to injury and to passing away, um, 
you know, it's hard to keep the momentum going when you're, you're taking these massive hits a little bit at a time. And I think by the time, you know, Fritz was ready to sell out, I mean, I think, I think anybody in that position would have just been completely overwhelmed and, and just dismayed and just depressed. And, uh, you know, that was pretty much the end of the, the grand world-class era. And, you know, there could have been so many what ifs. Again, I, I go back to the what ifs. I, you know, I don't like to go to them too often, but you, know, you think if per, if uh, Fritz would have had, you know, if he the kids would have talked him into this, uh, pulling the trigger on and going in with the national deal, would a Bill Watts, I mean, because they shared basically a booker throughout the years back and forth, yeah, Ken Mantell would go. You think that that, that could have found its way to, to a more of a, a solid southern syndicate of, of guys and, and, and UWF, which would inevitably could make itself even more attractive to what Crockett bought later. Definitely. I think these, these guys could have done many things differently to, uh, you know, to strengthen their local businesses and to expand nationally and to just create, uh, you know, something in comparison to what McMahon was doing himself. So I, I think there was a lot of missed opportunity for these guys. And like I said, I think, what was happening in the, in the personal realms of these individuals and just, you know, the eighties were moving so fast and people were caught up in drugs and just uh, so much was happening that um, I think that these, uh, you know, again, things just passed them by and then they realized, you know, what could have been and, and it really wasn't. And they, they missed out. Oh, absolutely. And, I, I, before we, we, we really start to kind of uh, wrap up the interview, there's other promoters get mentioned in this book too. And I want a couple of them just for, for the longevity. I have to give props. And even today, one of which is still uh, making some noise in his own way in the, uh, the, the podcast world and other projects. I, I want to talk about just, you know, how impressive to me, how, how, you know, and through the good and the bad, that the Owen family up there in Portland were able to keep the company to their 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 pro wrestling company together through various things, dealing with the state, dealing with athletic commissions, uh, what have you. Uh, that longevity, I, I I really I found to be so impressed uh, by, and also by Jerry Jarrett in, in Memphis too. I mean Jerry, who uh, had his uh, fingers in the pro wrestling pot up and into the two thousands with the formation of Total Nonstop Action. These are two uh, two great promoters, the uh, Don Owen and Jerry Jarrett. Um, Don was a, uh, a real gentleman. He c- controlled a really uh, you know a successful territory for many many years. And uh, had he not lost his made advertiser and uh, lost TV, he probably would have continued promoting into his 90s. And you know uh, you know he would have kept going. I mean, there's just no doubt about it. He just had some unfortunate luck at the end there. Uh, as far as Jerry Jarrett, uh, I admire him greatly, what he was able to accomplish. And it, had the deal with him and Gagne gone through, he would have ended up owning uh, the, the AWA. And imagine how wrestling would have been at that point, uh, you know, as far as, you know, the, the final, you know, organizations, uh, you know, in battle with each other. But uh, yes, these are these were great minds. And, and Jerry Jarrett is still you know, sharing with fans, you know, his, uh, you know, facts about his great career. And I, I love to, you know, hear, hear, hear his stories and it's, it's wonderful history. Yeah. And, and a lot of people too, uh, kind of forget, I mean, the casual fan, I guess, uh, the more hardcore would know, uh, you know, with Jarrett, uh, and, and Georgia championship wrestling with their, their little, uh, liaisons that they'd have uh, little flirtations that did that, that initially had some promise, but didn't really pan out in, in the end. But, I remember watching old stuff and seeing him on television promoting uh, his uh, brand of wrestling into the other territories, whether it be there or in Florida. So, I mean, the guy, whether he's a consultant or the main event, he's he's got such a great mind and still so, so sharp with it uh, in 2018. And I think everybody should listen to him and, and hear what he has to say, and uh, people inside the business should learn from him. I mean, he's definitely one of the greatest minds out there, and, uh, you know, he did, he had a wonderful career, and and if you go back and look at all the things that he was in throughout his, his, his time in wrestling, it is truly amazing. So, yeah, he is definitely one of the greats. You know, the, the Territory era was just such a magical time. And in your book, you talk about how things uh, declined and the wheels went off and the death of the territories and the like. But uh, if you take much time to think about what, what today's 
product, you know, with the, with the kind of the rise of this niche independent thing going on, and some, uh, you know, you can get guys that are non WWF uh, putting in ten thousand people into an arena in the Chicagoland area uh, coming up here uh, this weekend as we record, uh, or next weekend as we re- well as we record, uh, and, and and Ring of Honor companies like that uh, getting booked at Madison Square Garden. What is your your slant today on uh, the WWE in regards to uh, some of these other promotions? I know the WWE cast a big shadow over them finance financial wise uh, finance wise but what do you think about them in regards to product presentation and you know giving people an alternative uh, who don't want to look at what uh, Vince may have to offer in present day I, I think you hit it right in the head I think fans you know real fans of professional wrestling want alternatives and I think these independent organizations are, are finally doing a lot of things right probably better now than they have in many years using uh, social media to kind of drum up this, these waves of, of attention to their programs. And I think it's fantastic. I think the more the merrier. Let's, let's you know, have the shows in Madison Square Garden, have the show in Chicago. Let, let's, 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 I think independent wrestling can grow and grow. And I think in some ways there is a kind of a, you know, if you, you kind of compare it to the old territorial days, independent wrestling uh, the territories are surviving in a, a kind of a, a weird kind of a way. Uh, but I think in this era with, you know, cable television, you have all these different alternatives and people are watching, you know, streaming on their cell phones and, and social media. I think there's such a, a wider avenue to promote these shows and to build up superstars. And, and, and it's very exciting to to see this this new wave that's happening in professional wrestling. And I look forward to seeing what's going to happen in the future. All right, as we uh, wrap things up today, is there anything that we have missed is, uh, that we didn't get covered today that you'd like to uh, mention to the listeners, uh, as well as uh, information on where they could find more uh, stuff, information about you or the books you sell? Anything? Um, I think we, we've pretty much covered a lot of topics here. Uh, uh, people can uh, learn more about me. They can go to my website, uh, www.legacyofwrestling.com. Uh, people can pre-order the book. Uh, it's available at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and other major bookstores. And people can contact me on uh, on Twitter at uh, at Tim Hornbaker. Um, I'm a, you know people can ask me questions if they have questions about the book or professional wrestling history. I'm always available. Um, I, I think that's that's pretty much it, Glenn. Thank you. All right, all right. Oh, I was just going to ask too before I, I got into what I was saying. Uh, and if you got anything cooking uh, as far as uh, you know, whether it be pro wrestling or non pro wrestling, are you taking a break from the writing? What's going on? Uh, what projects no, do you have I, cooking? That's gr- yeah, that's a great question. I am uh, doing some preliminary research for a book that I'm very excited about. I'll just give you. I'll just say that it's a biography biography on a old time professional wrestler. I don't want to, can't really make an announcement just yet. I probably will uh, sometime soon, but I'm real excited about it, and um, I'm hoping that it will be available by next year. Oh, I, I definitely uh, will keep us in the know on that because uh, the books you've put out uh, through the years have been so, so good, so absorbing and, and, and entertaining, too. I mean, I, I, I go back to these books uh, from time to time and, and just to get more information. But that's the good thing about a book like that, that has just keeps me in like a sponge. And I know there's a lot of wrestling fans out there that are going to dig this book, Death of the Territories, if they're familiar with your past stuff or they're just giving you a go for the first time. Maybe you'll find a few extra extra eyes uh, in the next uh, coming weeks, months, and years. Thank you so much, Tim Hornbacker, uh, for being a part Thank of you. Wrestling Memories. You are always welcome to come on back, and we could talk about any old memories. We could just put a couple of things in a hat and pull out. We could talk about some classic wrestling stuff. Yeah, that's, that's great. I'd love to be on the show again. Like I said, it's a real honor to be with you, and I really appreciate everything. Thank you. You're very welcome. For Tim Hornbacker, I'm Glenn Brockett. You've been listening to Wrestling Memories Then and Now.